a listener production. This is From Zero, where I get the real stories behind some of Australia's best business successes. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost half a billion dollars annually without raising a dollar of outside capital. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak with Daryl Wade, the co-founder and chairman of the Intrepid Group. The very first year, we took 47 travellers um, to Thailand. The next year, we took 150 travellers. The next, the year after that, 500 travellers. And just for context, in 2019, we took about 500,000 travellers. These days, the Intrepid Group is the largest adventure travel company in the world. But before he turned backpacking into a multi-million dollar career, Daryl says he was just a normal kid. He wasn't the best student, and he didn't even have any side hustles. But he did grow up in a business-minded family. But Daryl's business career wasn't forced or even encouraged by his parents, but it didn't hurt to be surrounded by all these conversations. In the basement of a retailer, rolling fabric, and turns out he was pretty good and he got a few promotions. And by his kind of early 20s, he had this opportunity to buy into a retail store down in Geelong with another guy. And the two of them went down there and it was called Lindsay's at the time. And, and that kind of grew into Target. And so, you know, he became from nothing, really, a, a pretty successful business person. I'm not sure if you'd call him an entrepreneur or not. I think you probably would. Yeah. So how did, how did it relate? So he had, he had a retail store, him and his partner, and he found out about Target, which was in the US at the time, or what was what was what happened there? Yeah, so the, the two weren't linked. Um, Dad and his partner were just kind of voracious learners. You know, they'd read everything and meet as many people as they could and and travel quite a lot. And that was really, you know, pretty unusual back in the in the 60s. And dad kind of made himself almost like a, a grown-up intern at different companies. And one of them was hmm. um, Mark Spencer in the UK. And he went over there to um, just kind of volunteer his time for a few months and learn about quality control systems because he thought that was the future of retailing. And then another kind of internship was with the uh, Target retail chain in the US. And one day he just said to Target, he said, Gee whiz, I love your name. And, you know, the name of our firm is Lindsay's. It's not a very good name. I really like your name. Can I use it, your name and, and change it? And they just said, yeah, sure, don't worry about it. John, that's fine, you know. And, and so they <laughs> did. And, you know, I think it's a sign of the times. I don't, can't imagine that ever happening these days. So that, so when someone shops in Target in, in Australia now, they, they're essentially shopping at the store that your dad created. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And he eventually sold it. To, he sold it to... to Coles in the end, or Maya? What no, was to, the? To Maya, was the... yeah, the, uh, you know, this was back in mid seventies, I think, um, and so um, the Maya was still kind of um, family owned uh, department store chain. Dad had worked with Maya a few times in in early uh, shopping centres like Southland and Eastland and all those kind of things, and where they'd open a Maya, but they'd also open a Lindsay store to kind of partner it mm. and create a better retail environment. And so he knew the Myers guys really well and, um, yeah, eventually sold the business to them. And your mum started getting involved in business as well. Was it, was it around that time? Yeah. Or what, what? You know, mum was um, very much the stay-at-home mother and, and kind of looked after us kids. And, and, and dad was pretty amazing too. He was never late home or anything, but mum saw it as her duty to really 
um, look after the kids. And so when Dad was kind of starting to think about uh, getting out of Target, Mum was starting to think about going into business. So hmm. we opened a, a small restaurant, which then led to other restaurants and, and then kind of that led to property development and, and building things. And and so, you know, she became uh, quite a successful business person in her own right. Um, Dad's not with us anymore, but Mum still is and she's uh, yeah. 93 and, and still wow. kind of buying and selling things. So, yeah, she's, <laughs> she's quite a person really. Your dad was incredibly successful. Your mum was incredibly successful. And I th- your brother was had a successful career. And obviously you're, you're a remarkable success. So you've had – I don't think there'd be – I doubt there'd be any family in Australia that's had four people in the family that created four separate – completely separate businesses with separate capital and, and separate ideas that have all been ridiculously successful. Was there – was there anything your parents did at home? Did you talk about business a lot at home? Was it a, is it just coincidence that all four of you were just sort of these unbelievable business people? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, isn't it? And, you know, in a way it kind of can't be coincidence. Um, you know, there's got to be something there, doesn't there? But on the other hand, you know, it's not like there was a, a culture or expectation or anything like that. You know, we didn't sit around the uh, dining room table talking about business ideas or or anything like that. You know, it was, uh, and there was zero expectation about any of us going into business or doing anything. You know, mum and dad's attitude was very much just, you know, find your balance in life and, and you know, kind of seek out happiness, you know, have good, solid relationships in your life but you know your partner and your kids and friends and and all that type of stuff and you know obviously they weren't against business by any means but mm. there was never any pressure or suggestion that we we head that way yeah so you you finished school and, and you went to uni uh i think you went to to melbourne uni for, for memory and at that point did you have any idea what you wanted to do or how sort of how structured were you in in, in what what life was going to be I was really unstructured. Um, you know, as I said before, I don't think I was ever particularly good at anything. And so I got to scrape together enough marks to get into Melbourne Uni. And uh, <laughs> I remember actually on the first day of uni, I was in a lecture theatre and the particularly crabby commercial law lecturer came in <laughs> and said, listen, i got to say to you guys, you're the worst class I've ever had. And I'm thinking, that's a bit much. That's, you know, first day of of uni to be told this. And he said, yeah, Melbourne University has never had such a low interscore in the <laughs> university. And I thought, well, not only is this class the worst he's ever had, but I'm probably the worst student he's ever had. <laughs> I got exactly the mark that was required in order to get in. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I was lucky enough to get into uni and, and kind of learnt a, a few things along the way. But, yeah, I didn't have any ambition. It's not like I necessarily, you know, knew where I was heading and I was trying to get a certain amount of knowledge or, or whatever to make that happen. Uh, it was just kind of, okay, here I am. We'll, we'll, we'll go through uni. We'll, we'll make some friends. We'll hopefully have a good time. Hopefully get a pick up enough skills to get a job at the end of it and see what happens. So I think at the time you're at, you're at uni and you met a bloke called Jeff Manchester who who became a pretty big part of your, your, your story. How did you guys, how did you and Manch meet in the first place? And, and, and did you hit it off straight away? Yeah, we're both from the country. So, like, I was from just on the other side of Geelong and, and uh, Jeff, or, or Manchester, we all call him, he was from um, uh, Terelgan. And so we were both staying in a residential college at, at Melbourne Uni. And um, so literally the very first day of, of college, there's, you know, the, the mandatory chicken and champagne orientation <laughs> breakfast where we got together and uh, and I was just having a bit of a chat to him and, you know, he seemed, uh, you know, kind of a bit like a, an awkward kind of, 
fish out of water type person. I was feeling exactly the same and we just kind yeah. of bonded there and then, I think, and became good friends. And, and and as it turns out, he was doing the same course as I was, so we'd go to lectures together and uh, and just, yeah, became really good friends. And um, so we knew each other for 10 years before we actually started the business together. So you, you, you finished, you went to Melbourne Uni, you got your commerce degree and yep. you finished and then you entered the workforce So because you didn't start Intrepid for a number of years. So what happened? So you finished uni, did you plan to start business for yourself or you were you always just planning on being a sort of employee or in it for a big corporate? Yeah, look, as I said, I didn't really have any plans, um, but certainly at that stage I just thought, well, you know, let's see what happens. And so um, actually at the end of my degree I went travelling for um, three months with Manch actually in Europe um, just as a bit of a, you know, we had three years of study, let's go and have some fun for yeah. a few months. Got back and um, put I actually put an ad in the paper to say, uh, I think it said, um, commerce graduate available for hire or something. It was on, <laughs> it was on the front page of Business Age uh, huh. at the time, you know, in, in good old-fashioned print newspapers. Yeah. I got a call from a, an electrical retailer, a company called Billy Guides. So I'm not sure if they're still around. They just said, I'll come out for an interview and um, and let's see how we go. So I did that and it was a kind of a marketing graduate kind of role and uh, I stayed with them for two years and I think, to be perfectly honest, I think I was the worst recruit they'd ever made because <laughs> I'm not the most numerate person in the world and this was a marketing thing and so it was all about kind of data analysis and kind of looking what's working and what's not working and all this kind of stuff. And half the time I'd be getting the sums wrong and mm-hmm. I don't think I was very good at all and, and I didn't particularly enjoy it either, to be perfectly honest. And um, anyway, after a couple of years I, I decided, okay, look, it's time to see what else is happening in the world. So I got a, got a backpack and got a Lonely Planet book and went travelling for a year in Asia. I've never heard of anyone putting an ad for themselves in the place. So this is back in early 80s. I imagine an ad in the age would have cost at least a few thousand dollars, I would have thought. So- no, no, it wasn't. Uh, no, it was, it was only, um, I think it was something like 500 bucks. And, and you know, in fact, it was my dad's idea. It wasn't mine, to be honest. <laughs> and, and he just said, I, I think I was saying, look, I'm not sure what I want to do. Um, you know, there doesn't seem to be many jobs out there. And he said, well, if there's no jobs, advertise yourself. Put an ad in the paper. Hmm. So I did, and, <laughs> and it worked. Daryl returned from a year travelling through Asia, but didn't go straight into his own business. In fact, Daryl did just the opposite. He got a job working for a big corporate. Daryl decided to work for the world's biggest greeting card company, Hallmark. But working for a big business wasn't really for him, and Daryl stuck around for just a few years. At the same time, Daryl had an idea of his own, along with his great mate and soon-to-be business partner, his girlfriend, Anna, and her brother, they came up with an incredible idea. They'll drive a converted tip truck overland across Africa. Uh, one night, my girlfriend and I, the, uh, the woman who's now my wife, um, <laughs> she, uh, she and I went out to see a film called The Gods Must Be Crazy. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> I remember that. Absolutely remember that. About an overland or an adventure in Africa and it was a bit of a classic yep. movie. And anyway, as we came out of the cinema, we ran into um, uh, Anna's brother, James, and and uh, it was James that I'd spent the uh, long time travelling previous two two years prior, travelling through Asia with, and um, we said, "Gee, we always said we'd go to Africa one day. Why don't we go and buy a truck and go to Africa?" And James said, "Yeah, yeah, that could be good." And so I said, "Listen, our house is around the corner. Why don't you come around for a beer? This is after the film." And let's have a bit of a chat. So we, um, over the course of a few beers that night, uh, with Anna, we decided to buy a truck and get a group of people together 
and um, ship the truck to England and <laughs> um, fly over to England, hop in the truck and then just drive it down through Europe and into Morocco and then down across Africa. And so we thought this was a good idea and we put feelers <laughs> out friends and half a dozen friends joined up and, and one of them was, was Manch. And then we got a half a dozen blow-in people who thought, oh, yeah, <laughs> crazy enough to go along with you. And so away we went, 14 of the people into Africa for six months or so. The one thing I've always so wondered about this is why didn't you buy a truck in the UK? Well, why did you buy one in Nunawading and ship it over? Um, there must have been a reason for it. You don't know anything about overland travel, do you? <laughs> I do not know. I know, but you're the you're the you're the tour guy. I'm the, I'm just the retailer. <laughs> so so I did know a bit of that about it because I'd had a <laughs> I had a three month trip from uh, Kathmandu to London in the back of an overland truck, a, a company called Encounter Overland that doesn't exist anymore. Anyway, these these trucks are, are quite custom built. So you build you buy just a, a basic truck with nothing on it. Uh, that's yeah. four-wheel drive, and then you put a tray on the back and some seats and big uh, long-range fuel tanks and all the rest of it. And so James, this other guy I was organising the trip with, he um, he was an orchardist, but by for all intents and purposes, he was a mechanic, and and he really knew how to build a truck. And so hmm. and because he lived on an orchard, he had a workshop available and plenty of space and all that kind of stuff. And hmm. so um, we bought the truck here fitted it out here with the help of lots of people, lots of friends, slave labour, getting the truck built <laughs> and chucked it on the back of a ship and sent it to Africa. So, sorry, sent it to London and it was just a, yeah. a much easier way to do it than go to Africa, uh, sorry, go to London and try and find a truck there and uh, equip it. There's a, there's a lot of equipment to do to get an overland truck ready to go. How did you fund this trip? So did you guys fund it from your own money initially then effectively – cover that cost for, with with the dozen or so people that came on board later? Is that kind of, a, you know, is a, a classic startup product, um, yeah. you know, pro-proposal and, and you know, in a way the truck was our minimum viable product and then we kind of, yeah. it, it, was, it wasn't really quite equipped and we didn't really know what we were doing and we didn't have any money and, and all the rest of it. So, you know, each of the friends, first of all, that were coming along, we said, well, look, you better give us a couple of thousand bucks each so that we can get this truck ready and then, the blow-ins came along and we said, well, this is what we think it's going to cost. And and then we just put the whole, all the money into a, effectively a kitty and um, that paid for getting the truck ready, shipping it over, plus, you know, food along the, on the route and any, you know, expenses, fuel and all the rest of it that we had on the way. And so we just made it up as we went along. And um, mm-hmm. at the end of the trip, uh, you know, seven or eight months later in in uh, in Kenya, we, we sold the truck and, gave everyone back uh, a check to, to say, well, you know, here we go. And so, so James and I got a discounted trip, but we didn't get a free trip. We just got a discounted trip yeah. and everyone else paid a little bit more. I think, is that, do you think that's sort of the first, your first real jump into being an entrepreneur in a way? Because you obviously you funded the, you put your capital out and you and James. Yeah, I think that was the first uh, real thing. But having said that, you know, in my, when I was at Hallmark, my wife often tells the story that I was a bit of a pain in the ass because I'd often come home with crazy ideas for businesses and clearly the whole corporate thing wasn't sitting very well. And so, you know, one week I'd come home and I'd say, hey, Anna, I've got this great idea. I reckon yabbies are going to be the next best thing, next <laughs> thing you know, and, um, you know, move over prawns. Australia's got yabbies. We should grow yabbies and commercialise them and blah, blah, blah. And she's saying, 
Daryl, that's a stupid idea. You know nothing about farming. It'll be terrible. Won't work. <laughs> and there's various other ideas and things like that. But um, fortunately for me, when um, we, we raised the idea for what would become Intrepid, you know, Anna was the first one to say, "Hey, now that's a good idea. It's the first decent <laughs> idea I've ever had." <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's this is always the part of the story I like the most when you when you when you're going from because everybody has an idea. Um, and you obviously see people with ideas all the time in, in many of your roles. So there's lots of ideas, but going from idea to execution is where the magic really happens. And yeah, yeah. Look, I think that's right. And it actually, it's an interesting point. And it really, it kind of annoys me when people have all these ideas, and a lot of them are really like good ideas, but they don't actually do anything about them. I say, you know, and you say to them, "Hey, that's a pretty good idea. Why don't you have a crack at that? Give it a go." Mm. Oh, and they'll give you a million reasons why it can't work. You know, but. You know, maybe it can work. So you've got you've been on this trip so with James and May. I'm sure Anna was on there as well, and Mantra was yep. there. So you, you come and you realise, well, actually, this this we have, we were able to fill clearly. There's demand for these trips, even with your relatively sort of rustic uh, equipment. Uh, so how did this become intrepid? What, what was the sort of process you guys went through from? How did James? Why was James not involved? Why was Manch involved? What what happened there? Yeah. Well, I guess the first thing is that the the Africa trip per se was not the model for Intrepid. Um, in fact, in some regards, there was everything about that and Intrep- uh, sorry, that Africa trip that we knew was not the forerunner of <laughs> the holiday company that we wanted to create. And so just going back to the initial idea, the initial idea actually happened a little bit before we got to Africa and it was, it was actually Manch's uh, idea. And he just said one weekend, we're away camping somewhere, and he just said before dinner one night, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, this backpacking thing? You know, I've backpacked in different corners of the world and, Daryl, you've spent a lot of time travelling and he said it's a really fantastic way to travel but he said there's a few disadvantages with it. And you know, so we went and over the course of dinner, we kind of unpacked it a bit, that conversation, and just kind of thought, well, what's the advantages and disadvantages of backpacking and what might be different? And, and so it was that kind of conversation over two or three bottles of red that, uh, was continued in the truck in Africa. And so as um, uh, when you're driving across Africa, obviously there's a lot of time literally just driving through, you know, crossing the Sahara or crossing the Congo yeah. or whatever. And you, so you got a lot of time to talk and think. And so Anna Manch and I would get in the front of the, the truck, like the, the cab of the truck, and he was uh, Manch was a, a, a truck driver by oh, – he was a licensed truck driver. I wasn't, so he was one of the few tri- drivers we had on the vehicle. And so the three of us would hop in the cab and we'd just top, toss around this idea for a business and, you know, what was a good idea, what was a bad idea about it, and and so it kind of fine-tuned. But one of the things we decided we didn't want was to be um, have capital assets, you know, like a truck, as trucks mm. are expensive, they break down, yeah. um, you know, there are all sorts of technical skills with them which we knew we didn't have. Um, and so we thought, well, we don't want hardware if we possibly can avoid it. And then we also kind of started to think, well, look, really we want to create something that is more like a Lonely Planet travel experience but you can do in just two weeks. And one of the huge disadvantages of travelling as a backpacker is that it's really time inefficient but, you know, mm. you, you've got to train tickets or bus tickets or you, you don't quite know where the best place to stay is or you you know you might want to go somewhere a bit more remote and you've got to hire a guide or you've got to find a group of people or you know hire a boat or anything you know there's all sorts of inefficiencies yeah. there and we just kind of the essential idea was that 
maybe you can take uh, the advantages of having a small group, remove all of those disadvantages and just travel in a really efficient way. And so, you know, that I just kind of mentioned in, in a minute or so what it took a few yeah. months on a truck to kind of distill, I guess, into the, into the idea. <laughs> By now, it was the late 1980s. Intrepid was the first of its kind in Australia and possibly the entire world. So there was no blueprint for Daryl and Madge on how to run an adventure travel business. They launched the business on a real shoestring. Daryl ended up borrowing $10,000 from his dad and Madge took $10,000 out of his superannuation fund. And if you're thinking $20,000 isn't that much capital to start a travel business, it wasn't all that much capital back then in the 1980s either. But Daryl and Madge weren't going to let that stop them. They took their combined income and set about creating what would become the very first Intrepid trip. Yeah, our very first trip was Thailand and, and the reason we chose Thailand um, was simply because uh, both of us had travelled independently there, like um, Manchin had a few months there at some point, I, I'd had a couple of months there at some point. And so we started using Thailand as the example of uh, almost the philosophy of the way we wanted to travel, that you could do, you know, lots of different things and and really give clients a pretty amazing experience and really get under the skin of their destination and, you know, explore the religion and explore the uh, food and language and, 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 and just the whole cultural immersion type approach that we wanted to take. And um, and I guess because we knew Thailand well and we, we knew that, you know, you could go cycling one day and walking the next day and mm. hop on riverboats and, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. We just keep kept working it up as our, as our model. And so then when we started the company, we created an itinerary uh, or, or two itineraries actually, one in northern Thailand, one in southern Thailand, doing what we wanted to do. And then Manch headed over to Thailand to be our first uh, leader. Uh, at that point, um, I'd been married for, or Anna and I had been married for, um, probably 12 months or so, um, and we were thinking about starting a family at some point, plus, of course, you know, new business. And so I, can, I tended to stay in Australia and kind of do the sales and marketing side and, and admin and whatnot, and yeah. Manch went over to Thailand and he was the leader and, and ran the operations on the ground over there. And, um, you know, the, between the two of us, it kind of worked well, except except for this mm. gnawing problem that we had no money in, and that just wouldn't <laughs> go away. <laughs> So you were essentially CEO, obviously became CEO, but is that sort of how you guys managed almost a head of product and you almost had a, you were almost CEO of the business? Is that how it sort of evolved or was no, it? not really. Never- um, it, it was more kind of uh, management operations, I was sales and marketing. Uh, neither of us was uh, CEO in those early days. Um, we were both kind of directors of the business in that kind of legal sense, leadership sense and um, Manch came back from Thailand after a couple of years and we we stayed both being directors for oh, a good few years and and then I kind of realised that, you know, we were both going to the same meetings and we were both thinking the same way and answering the same way and it was kind of duplication. And I said to Manch one day, look, why don't you become CEO for a while uh, so you can kind of make all those decisions and I'll go off and be sales and marketing director for a while and really concentrate on ramping up the sales and marketing side of the business and then after a couple of years we'll swap and I'll be CEO and you, he would never be a sales and marketing guy but you can be really concentrate on the operations side and, and, and help to scale that more. And so that's what happened and, yeah. and so then he had two years as CEO, I had two years as CEO and then I said to her, uh, him at that point, I said, so Manch, do you want to be CEO again after I'd done it for a couple of years? And he said, no, no, no way. <laughs> he said, actually, 
you're you're better at it, and I never liked it. So uh, if you <laughs> CEO, that'd be great. So so I stayed CEO for uh, I don't know how long, twenty years, twenty five years, whatever it was. So it's early, I think this is this is early nineties, isn't it? So late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, yeah. If you're running tours to Thailand. You you boost you genuinely bootstrapping the business. Uh, what was the, what kind of revenue were you doing with it? Were there any many employees? What, what give us think about the scale of the business in these early days? Yeah, well, so so the um, we always talk about uh, the number of travellers rather than the number of staff or anything like that. But so the, the very first year we took forty seven travellers um, to Thailand. <laughs> uh, yeah, which which is not a lot because the average sale was seven hundred ninety five dollars. And obviously, out of that, you had to pay for your hotels and trains and all the rest. Of it. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't, you know, the margins were okay, but the, uh, you know, the net proceeds weren't. The next year, we took 150 travellers. The next, the year after that, 500 travellers. Um, yeah. And, and just for context, in 2019, we took about 500,000 travellers. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's, it's changed a bit, but um, yeah, we our growth was limited a little bit by just the lack of access to capital because we uh, we couldn't do as much as we might have liked. So after Thailand, how did you guys start expanding destination cover? Because obviously you've got – you had Manch on the ground initially in Thailand, but you're running what's called DMC, so destination management companies now. But back then, were you just sort of ground people on that? How did you staff? Because it's, it's a big business. Yeah, and it's, and it's fascinating actually because, um, you know, we knew what we wanted to do with Intrepid. But to be honest, we didn't really know how to do it, and and we hadn't. Neither of us had worked in the travel industry, so we didn't know how the industry worked, and and so we kind of naturally assumed that we're you know what the industry would call a tour operator, and so we just assumed a tour operator would operate its own product, and hence managed going to Thailand. As it turns out, we found out later that that's not the way the industry usually works. <laughs> usually, the industry. Um, you have a, a brand, if you like, in, in Australia or the UK or whatever, and it, it kind of designs its tours, but it outsources the operations of those tours to a, a ground handler on the ground in Thailand or wherever it is. But anyway, we made, in retrospect, the very fortunate mistake of, of managing yeah. to Thailand to operate the trips and be the leader of the trips because it meant a couple of things happened. One, first of all, it meant that we were super, super close to our clients and we could tell exactly what they loved and what they didn't like, what we had to fix. And so it was just this really, really close, intimate feedback loop. And we could, you know, those first few trips, we were kind of modifying things left, right and centre to, to make them a better trip. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, the first few trips we ran weren't that great. Um, you know, the <laughs> feedback wasn't that sensational. And But, you know, people said, this is great, this is great, love this, hated that, hated that. <laughs> and, and, you know, we listened and so we were able to fine-tune the product and, um, you know, these days we talk about NPS scores and in those days we didn't have that. But I did, right from the get-go, I put in a feedback system and we were tracking every single bit of feedback, both numerically but also uh, qualitatively and and so we started um, assessing feedback scores on different elements in terms of what people liked, what they didn't like, good bits about accommodation, bad bits about accommodation, experiences, etc. And so that even then really drove our business and still does, I might, might add. You know, we're still feedback obsessed. It's one of the first uh, management items invariably that we talk to is, is feedback scores um, from customers. By now, it was the early 1990s and Daryl and the team needs to keep on growing the business. 
At first, they thought about expanding into Turkey because Daryl and Manj had been there before and they thought they could recreate what they had in Thailand up in Turkey. But they decided the Turkey was just too far away and also too expensive. So instead, they decided to stay in Asia. And next, they set their sights on Malaysia. It was cheaper than Turkey and even better, they could add it onto their existing routes in Thailand. But just as they were risking it all with a grand Asian expansion, all hell broke loose. Remember, this was the late 1990s and the Asian financial crisis and then the SARS pandemic both happened in really quick succession. And even though they built a really solid business by this point, Daryl and Manch were still new to the caper. And they had to figure out lots of it as they went along. You know, our inexperience and lack of kind of formal background in terms of knowing much really didn't help. And so, you know, you constantly found yourself that you just – didn't know what you're up against. You know, you you kind of your business was growing and something would hit you. You know, uh, you know, you realised that you needed computers. Well, how the hell do they work? You know, you realise <laughs> you need databases. Don't know anything about database. You know, and then there's operational issues and you know legality issues or financial issues or, or whatever it is. And there's just constantly things kind of slapping you in the face that you've got to adapt for and make the best of. And, you know, like you mentioned SARS there in passing and um, it's it's kind of not a bad example where I can't think what year SARS was at the moment, but, um, you know, the business had grown quite substantially and, you know, we had a lot of staff located all around Asia and um, SARS happened in uh, February, March period and we had just recruited a whole heap of staff to go to China to lead our China season and uh, we're all set to go and we actually had the first few trips that started and then SARS happened and um, and all of a sudden we were having groups were being locked in trains and locked in hotels mm. and, and um, you know, we just couldn't go anywhere and it looked at that, you know, it had already spread down to Hong Kong and Singapore and was emerging in Toronto and, you know, at this point, we thought, gee, this this could take over the world. You know, it could be a bit like COVID is now, but, you know. Yeah. And so it was really a, an existential threat and we just thought, well, all our revenue is based in Asia. At that point or at some point it started to look like it really was going to be an Asian crisis though and, and you know, the, um, the authorities had done a reasonably good job of clamping it down. And so, so the... SARS itself was getting under control, but what wasn't going to be under control was the the revenue for Intrepid. And so I kind of just realised that we had too many um, irons in the Asia fire, if you like, and we had to get out of Asia and expand. And so I just contacted all the leaders in China and just said, listen, you've got nothing to do uh, because we can't run businesses. Um, hmm. See if you can get yourself to uh, Europe and I'll meet you over there and we're going to create a European product. And um, so that's exactly what happened. A couple of us from Melbourne flew over to Europe. We met <laughs> uh, about a dozen of our people from Asia and, and China specifically in Paris one day. And, you know, between that call to them and, and getting landing on the ground in Paris, I bought a heap of European Lonely Planet books, hired a heap of cars and, you know, just said, okay, let's divide up and conquer Europe. You two, you know, you go to Italy, you two, you go to Spain, you two go go to Hungary or wherever and create a product for us and and do it as fast as you possibly can because we need something to sell to make make a dollar. And and out they went and we created this product really quickly and and everyone who, um, you know, put it through the database and, um, and started selling trips to Europe and, you know, 
it, it saved our skin, I guess. And it was just a, a lesson about, you know, what I would now call risk management and just say what can go wrong? You know, how do you respond to that? How do you mitigate it? Um, what do you, to a certain extent do you live with? You know, and so it's just, yeah, one of those formative things. It was kind of fun. Was there was there ever any time during during SARS or during the financial crisis or during the Thai coup where, where you were genuinely worried about maybe we won't make it? Oh, yeah, look, there was. I remember actually about five years into the business, um, uh, Manch had just come back from somewhere and we went and grabbed a sandwich and um, he said to me, gee, it's all going so well, isn't it? It's amazing. You know, we're, we're growing hand over fist, blah, blah, blah. And I said, <laughs> well, look, Manch, it's kind of going okay, but to be perfectly honest, it's not going that well because, you know, my salary is still not what it might have been otherwise. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, to be honest, I've now got, you know, two kids and, and you know, that the house could do with a few renovations and, <laughs> you know, it's not quite as good as all that and I'm not sure we are actually going to make it. And I remember saying that and he mm. looked at me kind of almost in horror and I just said, look, you know, I'm just getting a bit sick of being uh, living from hand to mouth, you know, and, mm. and it's not the existential crisis you were talking about in terms of, you know, SARS or, or economic crisis, but, you know, it was still nonetheless one of those moments and um, so it's, it's not always easy and... Um, you know, I know founders these days still have the same kind of issues and uh, I guess that goes with entrepreneurship, doesn't it? I'm just going to fast forward to the next really interesting period in, in your business life where you were doing about $150 million a year in sales. So you're, you're a genuinely big business and you essentially merged the business with the German travel giant TUI, so T-U-I for those listening, who were kind of like the flight center of Germany, but, but bigger. Um, so they're, they're a bit more more vertical. Tell, tell me about sort of how that transaction came about and and why you made a decision to essentially, you kept managing the business, but you sold an economic controlling interest to, to the TUI guys. Yeah, it was, uh, it was absolutely fascinating. So the background is um, TUI had been wanting to buy us for quite a long time and every year or so they'd knock on our door and say, hey, we want to buy you and all the rest of it. And, you know, the first couple of times I um, mentioned it to Manch and said, hey, look, you know, have you any interest in selling? And he said, no, not really. And I didn't either. And, um, you know, we were having fun and, you know, it was all heading in the right direction. So we just always told them to go away. We never got to price or anything like that. And then one day a person rang me and this would literally be on the fifth or sixth approach. And she said to us a, a price. She said, I think, you know, you could get X. And I said, that's kind of ridiculous. And I said, uh, no, look, we're not interested. We're just not interested. And, um, and I hung up the phone, didn't even meet her. And, um, and then I thought, gee whiz, you know, that X was a fair bit of money. And I went to <laughs> and I said, hey, Mitch, look, I'm, Terribly sorry, but I've just said no to this, but I think I better run it past you just in case you're interested. I can, I can always bring it back. And, and, and he said, no, 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 that'd be crazy. You know, we're having fun. Let's just do what we're doing. And I said, terrific. But anyway, I mentioned it to my CFO at the time. And he said, Daryl, he said, there's another way to look at this. He said, do we own 15, 16 other companies that in a way are not so very different to Intrepid that they've acquired over the last seven or eight years because they're on this acquisition vendor. And he said, if you look at those companies, none of them have done anything since they got acquired by TUI. And I said, well, that sounds like a good reason not to sell to them. (laughs) He said, let's think about it the other way. Why don't we look at it and acquire 
all of those other companies and put it under them under a new holding company and don't pay TUI any cash. However, give TUI equity in this new holding company and we would run those businesses collectively on the basis that we understand how to grow adventure travel companies. And, you know, for the previous um, 10 years, we'd had an average compound growth rate of 28% a year over the 10 years. You know, we basically went and sold them that proposition and said, listen, give us all your comp- those companies. Um, we think we can run them better than you do. Uh, inject a bit of I don't know, entrepreneurialism into those yeah. companies, get them growing. Uh, we'll give you some equity in the holding company and um, and see how we go. And um, and so that's exactly what we did. And they ended up with 60% of the um, of the new entity, the new hold co. We had 40%, but we had full management rights. And so it seemed like a really good idea. So we kind of tripled the size uh, of, of Intrepid or of this new co overnight. But within six months, maybe 12 months, we realised was this, there was just a, a – colossal values misalignment between us and them. And it's not like they were bad people or, you know, unethical or anything like that. They were all fine. But it was just, you know, it was a very large listed company. And, you know, it was in the FTSE 100. Um, their turnover was, I don't know, $32 billion a year or something like that. Yeah. Um, they owned planes and ships and, you know, and they're just very conservative. And we weren't, I guess. You know, we had a a higher risk threshold. You know, we like to explore new opportunities and take a risk and not quite know whether it was going to work or not, but have a crack at new new things. They didn't. They hated it. And, you know, they were all very um, rear view mirror. You know, they we'd get together for quarterly board meetings and we'd spend 90% of the time on looking what happened at the yeah. last quarter. And I'd want to spend 90% of the time on looking at what was going to happen in the future and yeah. what might be. And so it was just a, a misalignment, you know, and it was, they weren't bad, as they're saying, but, you know, we just didn't suit each other. And so as a result, everything stalled. And so not only did we not get those um, 16 or so companies to grow, but Intrepid itself stopped growing. Um, and so yeah. the whole entity just lost its mojo. And so after a few years, we we just mutually said to them, look, this isn't working, what do we do? And we decided to split it up now unfortunately um or fortunately or unfortunately um <laughs> we've done a lot of integration in the in the kind of three or four years and, and so splitting it up wasn't as easy as you take back what you had we take back what we had yeah so we ended up with a lot more of the business units and we gave them basically all the cash all the free cash that we had and so we came out of it in 2015 and with a a really skinny skinny balance sheet you know it was really really skinny yeah and and to be honest, a slightly broken company because we we just the culture of the business would had, had changed a bit, and we'd forgotten how to grow, and we'd forgotten how to take risks, and um, mm. we'd forgotten how to back ourselves. And so we got a whole heap of our leaders together, the same people who went into it. You know, our, our kind of management turnover is very low, and I just said to them, look. We've got to do something here. We've got to back ourselves. First of all, are you guys in it? Because I'm not going to buy back the company if you're not keen to really give it a crack. And and they yeah. were, and they were totally supporting Manchin I. And so we just thought, okay, well, how are we going to do it? How are we going to re-energize the business and get it growing again? And, you know, to be honest, I've never really cared 
that much about short-term profit. I reckon if you get an organisation working and the culture right, profits will take care of themselves. But you've really got to satisfy the customer, get the product right, be vaguely sensible with your, you know, your profit and loss and your costings and stuff, but really look to the future on what you want to achieve and getting the organisational culture singing. And so that's what we concentrated on. Um, and, and, you know, we started growing again and, and mm. um, you know, just it, I say it wasn't that hard. Growth is, is not easy, but, you know, if you back people and, and give them the support they need and empower them, then growth kind of starts happening and, and that's what we did. And so for the next five years uh, until um, and, until COVID, uh, yeah. you know, again, we were growing uh, 25, 30, 35% a year and actually our profitability was growing even faster than that. So it was a real success story again. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So you had that incredible five years. So you, you've, you've done a carry packer in a way and brought, brought back the business from from Tui and, and basically doubled the size of it and tripled the profits and, and you're absolutely flying. Uh, I remember we, we caught up last January when, when the job industry probably had its best month ever. And then fast forward two months and we had our worst month ever. Uh, yeah, I, in one sense, by then you had a you had obviously a strong, a much stronger balance sheet because you've spent six years being profitable. You're you're highly vertically integrated. You had this great customer trust and 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 love. Um, but obviously, at a business where demand completely dried up, and there was obviously a huge amount of refunding as well happening. How how did you? What were the first sort of court March eighteen to April eighteen two thousand twenty when you guys and 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 James and and sure if Mantra was involved were, were just thinking, what do we do here? Yeah, um, yeah, it's tough. And and it probably starts a little bit earlier than that, like a few weeks earlier than that when, you know, we realised that I think the day that COVID jumped from uh, China into Iran and Italy was the day I realised, oh, we've got a major problem here. This is going global and, and this just could be existential. So we got everyone together in the office and just said, look, there's a problem here with this COVID thing and, and it could be really, really bad. And um, James, who at this stage is our CEO, I'd, I'd given it up being CEO two or three years ago uh, just to concentrate on chair, being chairman and, and also just do other kind of projects that I want to get inv- more involved in. But um, James and I, as, as chair and CEO, made this decision that we were going to be utterly transparent to our people and, and just share the good news and bad news with as this thing unfolded. And so we had staff meetings every week face-to-face, which we filmed and then put that on the, on the website. You know, if you're a leader in Peru or a manager in Morocco or wherever you were, you could see the same thing and, and really understand what was going on. You know, so that news was obviously getting worse and worse. And then on uh, March 14, we realised that we are going to have to cancel uh, and suspend operations globally. And um, and so we had, I can't remember what the figures now, but certainly thousands of travellers in, in 80-odd countries around the world. And we had to, our first priority was to to get those people home and, and get them home safely. You know, this virus at this point's popping up everywhere and borders are closing and airlines are stopping flying and, and all sorts of things. So just keeping travellers safe and keeping our staff safe and, and getting them home and safe was no small feat. So we went into a bit of a bunker and, and 
in a way, that was good because we, we had to focus on those travels and stuff. But in a way, it was bad because we almost forgot talking to about talking to our customers who hadn't yet travelled and and we just went into a bit of a shell and, and, and lost the plot a little bit in terms of talking to customers <laughs> about their intended travellers and people were wanting money back. You know, you'll remember that too from at that stage. And we had a fantastic NPS, like really high NPS, very good consumer brand, incredible customer loyalty. And we were starting to throw it away and, and our head mm. of customer just said, guys, we're getting this wrong. We've, we've got to get our head out from the, the cave and talk to our customers and start to give them what they want and treat them like real adults. And, and so we started getting it right and, and I think, you know, we, we reformed it. We did and, and, and kind of, I think, got back some of that um, brand loyalty and whatnot. And, um, yeah, but it just... It, it was an existential crisis and we just didn't know whether we were going to get through it or not. And you're right that the balance sheet was in good shape um, and we knew we could last a while, but uh, we didn't know whether it was going to go on for, you know, a few months or a few years or, or forever mm. at that point, you know? Yeah. I think fast forward to sort of, oh, maybe six, 12 months and you did, and you and James executed probably one of the best ever capital raises in the travel space in terms of timing and structure when oh, you I- sold it. I think that's I'm going to be at Adam. <laughs> I think you, you sold a, a, a minority interest to a to a, a French, a very wealthy French family uh, who, who own a, a global sports brand. Uh, how how did that funding round come about, and how important was that round to, to I guess to, to the next five years for for Intrepid? Yeah, it's it was an interesting process actually, and um, I'll actually take you back a couple of years because about I don't know I'm thinking about. 2017, eight, perhaps 2018, um, we were starting to think about doing a, an IPO. And, um, but at the same time, I kind of also thought, well, gee, I'm not sure Intrepid is really ready for an IPO. I'm not sure our governance is quite right. I'm not sure whether our technology is quite right. And really, I think we still need to grow up a bit as a, as a company before we're mm-hmm. IPO ready. And so within changed our thinking and thought, well, maybe we should get private equity in for um, a little while so that they can really teach us the things we don't know. Because, you yeah. know, Manchin and I and our management team, you know, we still, um, you know, we still kind of figure that there's more we don't know than what we do know and, and maybe private equity could teach us a thing or two. So we had a um, uh, quite a few meetings with various private equities. Like when I say pro- quite a few, there would have been probably 30 or 40 meetings in Australia, US and UK and with multiple brokers, advisors and so forth. So it was quite an extensive process. And in the lead up to this, we'd, uh, we'd really ele- elevated the role of our board because I'd stepped away from being CEO and becoming chair. Uh, you know, I didn't know much about being chair either. So I thought, well, I need a few people who, in, genuine independent directors who can add a bit of grunt to our board and really start to act like a proper board. Anyway, those independent directors um, said to us at one meeting, look, we understand why you want to go to PE and we understand the advantages and all that, but there's disadvantages as well. And really, do you need to? Really, why don't you just keep the growth going, keep the momentum going, keep the skill set growing, build up your governance and anything else that you need to do and then just IPO yourself in a couple of years. So we kind of thought, well, the, val- the value of an independent director, hey, and so we decided to do that there and then and we parked all those private equity conversations. 
then along comes COVID and we think, okay, well, we don't need to do a capital raise. We're pretty sure we've got a balance sheet that will get us through. But at a certain point of time, maybe, you know, capital would be useful because we don't know how we're going to be able to come out of the crisis. So we'll get through it, but how will we be able to grow again and how will we be able to recruit new skills or, you know, incorporate new tech or, or whatever it is? And will we have the money to do that re-emergence? And we also thought that, you know, the, um, the industry could be quite weakened and in that weakness there could be a lot of opportunities for us. And so, you know, having some extra capital could be really good so that we don't just come out, but we come out really strong and fighting and growing. So um, we started having a couple of calls with those people who we talked to uh, a couple of years earlier and just to see if there's still interest or whether they kind of thought, travel, you've got to keep beginning us. We don't want to know, know about travel industry yeah. right now. And anyway, some of them did want to have a conversation. But out of the blue, we got a call uh, from this French family that you mentioned uh, who are turns out are a very humble uh, family and, and probably prefer to remain anonymous than so they will for the sake of this exercise. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the original approach was to our CFO and um, uh, <laughs> in my not best of ways, I think I said to, to my CFO, oh, look, I don't think we should talk to them because, you know, we don't know who they are, don't know anything about them. They're probably just tyre kickers, you know, looking for a <laughs> or something. And, um, and he and his superior wisdom to mine said, um, Daryl, do you mind if I just have a chat? I think there could be something about these guys. I think they could be really quite great. And I said, mm. yeah, sure, Vic, that's fine, but just don't waste our time. And um, anyway, uh, long story short, they're, they're a company that just saw a real strategic fit between travel and sporting goods, uh, sporting retailing. And, you know, they they – sell, I think it's something like six or seven million bicycles a year. And they thought, well, if we sell six or seven million bikes a year, why don't we sell that same person a bicycle holiday as well? Mm. And and they're the biggest supplier of walking shoes and backpacks in Europe. And same logic. Well, if we sell walking shoes and backpacks, why don't we sell them a holiday that goes hiking? (laughs) so, you know, when we heard this, plus we also heard the valuation that they had put on the table, mm. we kind of thought, gee whiz, this conversation really could go somewhere and, and you know, here we are and, and indeed it is. And quite apart from the strategic opportunity and the cash in the business, it's just it's turning out to be an incredible partnership as well. It's um, They're just really nice people and quite entrepreneurial, very humble and just really want to do great stuff and that's kind of what we want to do at the end of the day too. I think, I'm not sure if it's public or not, but I think my understanding is the valuation is well into the well above $300 million, which is probably similar to, to what you would have got looking at pre-pandemic, I'm guessing a couple of years ago. So, Yeah, look, that, that, that's right. It's the valuation. Um, we didn't take a hit in the whole process and, you know, I was pretty staggered about that. I mean, you know, I, again, perhaps not in my wisest judgments, but I, I said to uh, this Frenchman on our second call, I said, look, to be honest, why do you want to buy a travel company? You know, it's a <laughs> time to get into travel and, you know, I don't even know when we're going to get out of this thing, you know. Uh, yeah. you know this was about, I don't know, about September last year. And, uh, and he just said, look, we're a private company. Our, our firm has been in business for 40 years. We're going to be in business for another 40 hmm. years 
And so if the results are no good for the next year or two, that's okay. That doesn't matter. You've been around for a long time. We'll be around for a long time. We'll do great things. That's all that matters. <laughs> and I kind of thought, gee, that's the answer I think I needed to hear. Yeah. There's this almost caricature if you sort of think back to Monty Burns and all those characters of, of sort of successful wealthy people being sort of not always nice. And I think you're almost, almost the complete antithesis of that. I, I don't think there's anyone – and I know a lot of people intrepid and, and who doesn't like you. So you've got this <laughs> incredible ability to be, be liked. And also you run in, intrepid in the same way. You're a, you're a B Corp. So you, you make decisions based on workers, suppliers, customers, and the environment. You're not, you've never been, certainly you never struck me as someone who's been focused on, on money at all costs, or even money at, at any cost. How, how have you been able to balance such a, such a successful business with such an altruistic outlook on, on running a business? Um, look, I'm, I'm not sure I'd call us altruistic. I, I just, you know, I'm a person like any other person and so are you and so are any of our staff and so are any of our customers. So to a certain extent, it just kind of seems logical to treat people in the right way. And, you know, if, if you don't know something, tell them. And if you've stuffed it up, tell them. And together you try to do a good job, you know, and be that's provide the, the best holiday you can or be the best corporate citizen you can be or best employer you can be or, or whatever. And, you know, I think most people in the world are, are good-natured and, you know, you you said that, you know, maybe some people in business and entrepreneurs are, you know, kind of push it a bit. I'm not sure about that. Most people I met are pretty good and most entrepreneurs I meet are, are pretty good too. Yeah. And so I don't know. I just think it's a case of, you know, you, you're true to yourself, you be honest with your values and, and try to, recruit people with similar values to yourself and you know we always recruit people who love travel well that's a good basis for a conversation who have similar kind of um political values to us or values you know kind of how we like to be treated and what we care about in the world and you you take that kind of approach and i think things tend to work out okay how do you see your role continuing to evolve obviously james runs the business CEO and has since 2015. And you obviously, you're, you're very active in the business. Uh, and I think you're very active in the foundation. I think you've, you've donated more than $11 million now to, to some fantastic causes. How, how do you see your role and I guess Anna's role going forward and Manchester's role going forward for the next 10, 20 years? Is it time for you to focus on philanthropy more? Or you're obviously involved in, you're very involved in startups with Scalata and, and, how does what's the next sort of 10, 20 years look like? Look like for Daryl? Who knows? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I get some, it, perhaps it's my opportunistic thing, but you know, you don't know what's around the corner. And uh, as long as whatever is around the corner looks good and fun and interesting, um, then that's fine. And, and so, yeah, who knows? But I, I, I like to be engaged with different uh, opportunities. So, you know, I, I do quite a lot in philanthropy. I do quite a bit in startups. Uh, Intrepid still has so many opportunities ahead of it. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at getting into the accommodation space at the moment and just kind of shaking up, you know, what a good hotel or guest house or whatever might look like. And that that's kind of a fun project to, to drop into yeah. for a year or two. Uh, I'm very involved in industry sustainability. Uh, I spend probably half my life on trying to systemize sustainability for the travel industry. And, it, you know, it's a big challenge. I, I, I love our industry and I think travel is a, an incredible um, power for change and, and a, you know, really good thing for, for the world. 
if it's done well. But there's certain aspects of travel which are not done well and um, and it needs to improve, you know, whether it's carbon emissions or whether it's human rights or, you know, using mm. plastics or whatever. And that broader ESG suite, sustainability suite, whatever you want to call it, our industry has to do a lot better job on. So I've got involved in a couple of organisations which uh, got the global reach to make change. And, you know, that's a it's a daunting challenge, but it's a, it's kind of, I'm not sure if that one's a fun challenge or it's just hard work, but <laughs> it's something that should be done, you know. That was Daryl Wade, and you've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Our producer is Lindsay Green. Our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Listener.